Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. She's Gotta Have It star Tracy Camilla Johns presents her new photography exhibit in Laurel, Maryland, now through Thanksgiving. She joined me to discuss her shift from acting to photography, as well as memories of Spike Lee's breakthrough 1986 film and how she hit rock bottom before her spiritual awakening. Hey, Tracy Camilla Johns. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP in Washington, D.C. Absolutely, Jason Farrelly. It's my pleasure. Now, of course, all, all of our listeners will remember you from Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, um, which actually opened with black and white still photographs. So I mean, we had a little art thing going on then. But we're, today we're talking uh, your exhibit at the Laurel Historical Society in Laurel, Maryland. Uh, it's running now through Thanksgiving. I know it opened, what, I guess on November 3rd. So I guess I should start by saying, you know, how, how was opening weekend? Was there lots of good foot traffic, lots of good feedback? You know, how did it go? Um, actually, it was wonderful. There was a lot of good foot traffic. Um, I think there were people that were somewhat skeptical, as well as people that were invited, who I intended to have there. <laughs> but the support was tremendous. They definitely are um, getting more traffic than they usually get because it's a quiet little museum um, in a small part of the city, but it's a treasure. Um, I grew up in New York and I'm a museum junkie. Yeah, if you're in New York, you you've seen your share of museums, and so you can you you have the cred to weigh in on that. Uh, well, so we should say it is a photography exhibit. Thanks for sending some of the photos. We'll put them in the article. But describe you know some of the the subjects that you photograph. You know, it looks like some landscapes, looks like a bunch of different things. Describe the photos. Well, what happens? Um, this particular exhibit is specific to Laurel because this year's theme is it's all Laurel. So I have pictures from all over the world because it's um, it's a great love of mine, but um, kind of curating it to some specific images of Laurel. Um, it's, it's kind of like a quite kept secret that I have resided in the DMV for some time, um, but I've spent a great time, um, amount of time in Laurel. And uh, the running joke is, where is that in Laurel? But I was an illustrator. <laughs> when I was in college um, many moons ago and I have an eye I guess I, I you know I just see there's the lake there are there's a lot of local foliage which is incredible and it's one of those things where when you're an artist like you see a certain way and people kind of come and go every day and don't pay attention to me to the beauty that was literally my next question was you know why did you choose laurel did you have any local connections all that stuff so but you kind of answered that so yeah thank it i think a lot of our listeners don't know that you now live around here so how long have you lived in the dmv um actually more than 25 years Oh, wow. Okay. So you, you go way back here. You're a DMV through and through now at this point. But wait, so where, remind us then, where, where exactly did, did you grow up? 
Well, I grew up in Hollis, Queens, and this is always a running joke with me because, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And mm-hmm. I grew up like in the land of salt and pepper and and run DMC. And I remember when when rap originally started in New York, but the whole Queens influence. Um, I'm, I'm absolute still a diehard New Yorker. It never leaves you, even when you've traveled all over the world. But I came to Maryland um, more than 25 years ago after leaving the industry um, for an extended season. And this is the first place that I'd been to that I really felt like I could live for an extended time other than New York. And it has absolutely been my greatest blessing. I adore it here. Wow. Yeah. And why do you, I mean, first of all, yes, everyone knows uh, Hollis, <laughs> especially it's around Christmas time, Christmas and Hollis is a great, but yeah. So what was it about, you know, what was it about the DMV you think of all places? Cause it's definitely different than New York. You know, you don't get the big skyscrapers. There's like a height ordinance. Cause I guess the government buildings in DC, but just the general area, you know, like, is it like the geography, you know, near the Bay, but also near mountains, but also near big cities or I don't know. What is it for you? Well, you know, to me, this area, you can literally live any type of way, meaning this, if you have no income or if you are incredibly rich, there is some place in this area where you can live. And the fact that we're kind of centered 20 minutes from D.C., 22 minutes from Baltimore. So that means if I want some city, I can go get it. Um, But I can also kind of retreat to suburbia as, as it is. But um, when I came here too, when I left the industry, I had become a Christian. And when I settled in this area, I got very heavily involved in community service and outreach. And those relationships are really uh, just enduring. I have really incredible connections with uh, so many different types of not-for-profits because that's what um, became my love. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, am I, I guess, I mean, it's up to you, but am I allowed to ask what, what church you, you go to now? Is it in Laurel? No, well, we're, I'm a part of an outreach that I actually go back and forth between Maryland and Atlanta consistently. I'm probably in Atlanta about six months out of the year. Okay. Um, and we connect with a lot of different ministries. I tend to be low on the, the name of because, you know, we have people that are frequent and that take part in our seminars and our events pretty consistently. And I definitely try to collect the attention off of me because I am absolutely, I'm absolutely a servant here. I get people to build playgrounds and serve food and, you know, give out um, things to the needy or the underserved communities. Oh, that's fantastic. And I mean, I'd love to get more into your calling and leaving the industry and, and pivoting into this whole new life of yours a little more later. Um, But if you don't mind, I love uh, whenever I have someone famous like yourself on, I, I like to sort of move a little chronologically just to paint a picture for our listeners a little bit. So you say you're growing up in in Hollis, Queens. Like, how did you get into did you do photography or visual arts or film or anything, you know, as a kid, like performing arts? Like what was the first, I guess, spark, creative spark? So the the thing is, I came from one of those wonderful families, and I say African-American families, that um, both of my parents were um, working and in school when we were growing up. And, you know, their whole focus was, you're a young Black woman, you're intelligent, see the world, you know, do what you want to do. So the little glitch was, because my mother took me to every museum, and we used to stand you know, midtown and get half price tickets to theater. And then I took pottery classes when I declared 
that I wanted to pursue art or something in the arts, they looked at me like I was crazy. And they were like, you have to be a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor, and you can have a studio in your house when you're doing one of those things. So um, it was a little bit of a conflict. I ended up going to the Fashion Institute of Technology, though. My mother secretly helped me put together a portfolio and I got accepted. But the funny thing that happened on the way to a degree was I took a theater class as an elective and my final project had the instructor and every person in the class in tears. And he literally looked at me and he said, if you ever consider theater, I will back you all the way. The next day I purchased a backstage, which is the original trade paper. And I started auditioning. I made this great declaration that I wasn't going to wait tables for 20 years mm-hmm. and less year later, I met this character named Spike Lee, who at that point in time had just graduated. No one knew who he was. He just, so, N- NYU, the Tisch School, he had just graduated, right? Yeah. And I assumed that a Spike Lee was going to be like um, a Caucasian guy with like a leather jacket with studs on him. <laughs> and it was anything but. Um, right. And the, the, the little untold story about that was I was actually cast in another film that never came to fruition, but that started our friendship. And he wrote, she's got to have it for me. Um, I was super skeptical, but you know, all the things that happened happened. Wait, uh, now I have to know what was the film that, that you originally were cast in that Spike Lee, like, what did he like abandon it? Like, I, I'm curious what, it, what that the missing, <laughs> the forever lost film is. <laughs> I'm giving you all this totally like inside stuff. So the first movie that he was going to do in the time that I met him was a message, a film called messenger. messenger. And um, it was about a bike messenger and his brother at that time was a messenger. A lot of his movies, particularly the early ones kind of interweave parts of his life, but right. I've been as the female lead. And it was just one of those things where by the time we got to production, there was no film. And I was actually quite distressed um, because I told, everybody I could possibly um, encounter that I was an actress and I was about to do this film. But shortly thereafter, I was cast in a tour of a play with the Negro Ensemble Company. And it was a six month tour. It took me up and down the East Coast. It was an amazing experience because Keith David and Ruben Hudson, like there's a lot of people who were really prolific behind and in front of the camera that were in this particular production. And by the time we landed in New York for the end of the tour, Spike had the first rough draft for She's Gotta Have It. And he was insistent that this was going to happen. And it ultimately became what it became. Wow. Thanks for the backstory. So, so I, I, you know, I, I didn't know about The Messenger. So I, I knew, obviously, I knew that his thesis film was that Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, and, like wins the Student Academy Award. That Ang Lee and Ernest Dickerson, I think, were like on the crew. Like, uh, think of all yeah. the careers that came out of that. But so I but I didn't realize that there was The Messenger uh, that was, you know, a, a planned film that got abandoned before she's got to have it. There you go, WTOP listeners. There's your <laughs> thanks for the, the inside scoop on that. All right. So then she's got to have it of course we got it we got to hit the actual movie itself um tell me about i mean obviously this was before 
was like in terms of like film techniques and shots and you know all the film school geeking out stuff I'm about to do. Like so, it was before his double his double dolly signature, I think that started later in Mo Better Blues, which you did appear in. But um, but even even in the early phases here, you still you know you got you're breaking the fourth wall. You got the fragmented narrative. Um, there's even there's even like that cool. Um, you know, the whole movie's black and white, but there's that cool color dream ballet suddenly birthday thing, almost like one of those an American in Paris musical ba- dream ballets. You know, they even hand you the flower like like in the Gene Kelly thing. So but yeah, like were, were there any um, I don't know, was there a specific shot or like or, you know, camera technique, a, a filmic synesthetic thing that really all these years later, you're like, wow, that still blows my mind. Well, you know, what's really funny about that is because I just Less than six weeks ago, I was in New York um, as I was interviewed by the the um, Parisian equivalent of PBS, of public um, television, for their arts network. And it was this wonderful French crew, and they literally took me to the different destinations, to the different locations as part of this documentary. And as much as the initial color sequence was not my favorite. Mm-hmm. It was kind of so melancholy to be there for the first time in more than 35 years. So um, I would say that's probably, I really appreciate it greater. I should put it to you that way. Now my favorite scene um, in looking at it recently is the Thanksgiving scene. Yeah. Um, and that had a lot of different things going on in the angles and everything that we used. But yeah, just overall, the film was so unique, um, even though we did the whole thing. I was on St. Mark's with Spike uh, selling tube socks and signing autographs before anybody knew who we were. <laughs> and when the movie was getting screened, um, this is also a not widely told story, but it is published. Um, but you well, know, you're going to tell it here on T.O.P. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tell It or Bus Day. Um, so... <laughs> So um, during the process of the film being edited, there were several screenings just to get backers to get the film completed. You know, the story is, and it is the truth, $175,000. So even back then for an independent film, this is where he coined the term guerrilla filmmaking because we were going from location to location, many that required permits and had none. And that was at a lookout and we literally would collapse the equipment and run to avoid the police. So, <laughs> Did they ever actually show up? Was there any like, whoop, whoop, you got to get out of here? Uh-huh. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so it's 12 days in Fort Green, Brooklyn on a budget of 175,000. Ernest Dickerson is the cinematographer. He went on to make yeah. the ju- juice with Tupac and Spike's directing. You're in the lead. Obviously, the, the three characters. So like you're lit- you're saying that the whole crew would just have to pack up real quick and run to the next place. <laughs> and the that were not sanctioned by those that are an authority. Yeah. Wow. So then. This whole thing, we're excited. The The reception to all of these partial edits is really amazing. I'm meeting some really wonderful people in the film community. But then a year later, we're in Cannes at the film festival, which was total dream come true. And even though we were there, you talk about such a pinch me moment because although he refutes this greatly, he said he knew, he knew, he knew, even in that atmosphere, I had no idea that we were going to return home when it was going to be released. We had lines around the block for months, literally. Um, it 
it turned into this thing far greater than even what I had wanted at that point in time. And um, just the travel experience for somebody who was really new to the industry and um, just all of the amazing um, just encounters and, and just every aspect of it at that point in time was such a joy to me because I was, I was like totally green and this was, and this was like before the internet really. So you think about how things are now, um, for back then, it was huge. Oh, absolutely! It's 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 almost easy to for folks young, especially younger listeners now, for you all to take for granted like the watershed moment of this movie because you know it, it inspired so many other things, and we've seen so many films in the you know whatever almost forty years since. But but if you really got to put on your prism and your your hat of you know where we where we were at in a film community in in eighty six, and honestly, she's gonna have an eighty six. Where I get and and I also like I guess like Jim Jarmusch's Strangers in Paradise, probably in eighty four. But like those two movies around the mid eighties, just like charted a new path of those. I always think of them as this black and white American independent film movement that 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 just took off and and you know this was and you know sundance and everything all that but you really got to go back and it was it was a total game changer um in terms of film um but also in turn before you know one more on that before we move on to you know the aftermath of the movie and everything else you did but like just in, what about in terms of the you know we've talked a lot about the film techniques and everything and you know social relevant but like what about like just the your character you played itself nola darling i mean she was a graphic artist muralist this sort of socially liberated woman juggling these three suitors. But yeah, just like the, the, how, where do you think her place in, in, in our social evolution, our, our progress as a society, you know, we hadn't seen a female character like that and let alone a, a black woman character. It was pioneering stuff. Yes. And um, it's so funny because just the other day, somebody said to me that with the exhibit, this is kind of like a, a, a kind of ironic full circle because mm -hmm. I was, um, Spike knew my illustration background when he created the movie. So some of those things were drawn from Tracy, the person at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So you have um, obviously the independence, obviously um, the, the sexual liberation part of it um, was something that was definitely not seen in black cinema at that point in time. Um, it was, it was absolutely groundbreaking. It was very controversial. Um, even though it, it, there were, I mean, uh, there were thousands of, of responses and, and feedback that I got even back at that point in time about, you know, that's me, you know, you're showing me, you're showing my sister, you're showing my cousin. Um, at that point in time, I lived a very different life than I did then too. So, you know, she was considered progressive. Um, I was very much uh, an adventurer and uh, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I'll take the dare if I thought it was what I wanted to do. I just thought that, um, I thought that the film overall was important. You can't get away from the, the sexual side of it, which is kind of the, the irony behind the fact that 35 years later, I'm an evangelist and a community service coordinator. And so it's so funny, but it's also an amazing, beautiful platform um, because people, you know, get to see that, you know, yes, in that season and time, that was who I was. And I'm always eternally proud to be part of history because really the movie is iconic, the role is iconic. Um, but I've lived through so many different um, seasoned, and then I'm still here. I'm 60, uh, which I proudly say, because God knows um, I would rather say I'm 60 than not be here. 
And um, I, I just really, I'm, I'm grateful to have been a part of history, to be a part of history. And, and that the fact that it still is a door opener to life and through it, I still am able to touch other people's lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is mention the name of that movie and people come to your art, your photography exhibit. You know what I mean? Like it is it is a yeah. great thing that you get a label. You can sort of slap on whatever other things you got going on. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there. The Unidentified Alien podcast or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all all over the world and the beauty of it is that i bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe download and subscribe to uap on any of the major podcasting platforms and you can also find it on uappodcast.com i'm bradley trainer and i'm don mcclain we have a podcast called blinded by the item a blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out it's a guessing game and you can play along the item might be like this a-list star carries a birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Well, I want to I want to fill in our uh, fill in that gap between those two seasons of your life. Like you're saying, like, um, so so then after like, let's bring them sort of quickly up to the present then after the movie. So it it wins, like you mentioned, the award of the youth or whatever at can. And then I think it comes back here. You were nominated for best female lead at the Indie Spirit Awards, too. Right. Um, you appear in Family Ties. You appear in with Spike in the Air Jordan commercial with with Michael Jordan, the goat. You're in the music video for Tone Loke's Wild Thing. Like, how many doors did it open there, like, there in, like, the mid to late 80s? Like, you're, you know, tell, take me sort of into that whirlwind of, of the immediate aftermath of now everyone knows who you are in the industry. Yeah, so one of my favorite things, and this, too, is one of those things where um, not a lot of people know this part. Family Ties was my absolute favorite TV show. And so um, I believe it was Allison, uh, the casting director, Call me for that. You you could have. I was like done. Like let up. I've been to Cannes. I'm flying back and forth to London and to Rome and all these amazing places for people to take my picture. And I am like drunk, giddy, happy over Family Ties, which is really funny. Um, I did uh, Michael J. Fox. How was he? (laughs) And just the most wonderful person at that time and what I understand to this day. Just an amazing person, but everybody was. Um, everybody in there was great. But um, when I did New Jack City, I did a series that didn't get picked up, but we shot eight episodes with Tim Reed and Daphne Reed called Snoops. And um, it was just such, it, w- it, was, it was definitely a whirlwind. Um, it was very enjoyable in certain parts, but towards the latter end, which is kind of like why I did the, the leave the industry before it kind of took me out entirely. Mm-hmm. When the audition slowed down, when it wasn't you were the flavor of the moment and absolutely the 15 minutes of fame had subsided. And I had the whole Warhol connection because in New York, I'd done a lot of things with interview and um made a lot of friends with that particular entourage, Jean-Michel Bascat and a, a number of other people. Oh, you but, knew Bascat? Um, yeah. There's a, actually, there's a, there's a round of photos <laughs> from the premiere with he and I looking like we're very much a couple and we were not. Well, we were there 
And it's so funny because whoever dug those up, they're now circulating widely because people, I have friends all over the world who like to, they do the Tracy Camilla Johns alerts because I have a very low social media personal presence. Right. So people send me things. I have the internet police who send me anytime they see my image to make sure that I should be getting compensated, that I'm aware or just so that I know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Wow. You knew Basquiat. I mean, everyone, I mean, I remember Jeffrey Wright playing in the movie with David Bowie as Andy Warhol and all that, but that's so you knew the real one. <laughs> I knew the that. And then um, Andy Warhol was quite an unusual character, but I did, he had a TV series for a moment and I did an episode of the TV series and I did interview of an amazing layout, um, which was just, it was the day, This is. it was the day that Anita Baker's um, album came out with sweet love on it. I will never forget. And yes, back then we call them albums. Um, <laughs> Miss those lived, days. <laughs> yeah. But um, I came to a kind of crash and burn, which has kind of precipitated this whole epiphany um, because I could not buy a job because I was young. I had, I was a bit of a trash talker. Um, I, I was doing a lot of um, excessive living just overall you can kind of hit all the check marks and when I like could not pay the rent any longer and all of the entourage had disappeared I really and really and truthfully wanted to check out um, I'm very grateful that there was a group of women and they were all powers in the industry but they were believers um Corinne Duke who was um George Duke's wife both of them are now passed mm. but Corinne Duke, uh, a, a very kind young lady, I, a friend I have back from Brooklyn, another friend of mine in New York. And um, they were just all very encouraging and really just praying for me and believing that I was going to stop the crash and burn. Um, so I really did have this moment where I just decided something's got to give. And on the other side of it, I just I just decided that I was going to just trust that I could c climb out of it. And, and really, with the power of God, I did. So then wow. I uh, traveling, I did missions work in South America, in the Philippines. I traveled with this amazing group of young people that came from similar backgrounds. They were from entertainment, they were from sports, um, and they all had a common goal that they wanted to serve with their lives. They wanted to take what they had and you know use it to the greatest purpose. And so 30 years later, several, um, morphs of the original state i i am here wow that's a great thank you for telling sharing me with all that and, and just so i have it for when i write the article and everything what what year about are you saying that you that you le officially left the industry and started going to S south america for the missions and everything if you what like what what time period are we talking it was 91 90 oh so literally the year of new jack city with um mario van peebles and the son of melvin Van Peebles, all that stuff so you come off of that you did mo better blues in 90 with spike then new jack city peebles and then right after that you say well if you don't mind me i mean you said i wanted to check out do you mean like are we talking like leave this yeah. earth or do you mean check out of the industry no check out of of, of the earth it literally was it was wow. that that's so severe um, and so because suicidal been, thoughts and you're like, I, there's got to be a better way. And you and then in 91 is when you start the the Christian, uh, the pivot. Absolutely. Wow. Was there a particular moment where you felt I, I don't want to make it you know too religious or whatever, but let's go there. Why not? I mean, it's you know, it's, is there a, was there a spiritual epiphany or is it more gradual? 
So Jason, okay, and once again, I know that you can edit whatever you need to, but I'm going to just do the whole, because I speak publicly now. I'm actually, um, this is going to be the first year that I'm literally doing a cross the country, um, attend different Christian and also non-Christian because I speak to to secular organizations as well. But I'm going on a tour and I'm literally, my intent this year is to do nothing but tour um, as I feel led. But Mm -hmm. What happened was um, between the drugs and the drinking and everything else I was doing excessively. um, And then when I kind of, I was literally sleeping on my then manager's floor, my, my clothing, my personal items were in storage on the East coast. I was in West Hollywood sleeping on my then manager's floor. Hmm. And I was getting high every night just to kind of like not deal with life. Yeah. And, you know, I could still roll around Santa Monica or wherever. And I knew, you know, all the people. And at that point, I think more out of, you know, I was still writing whatever the remnants of fame were, but people knew I wasn't working, working. Um, I I came into the apartment of a young lady then who was just, she's a really sweet young lady. And she was just excited because it was the girl from the movie. And then she was hanging out. And I would just take them to clubs and to premieres or, or whatever. And, you know, they would meet this one and that one. And they were so geeked. And they were just like these really nice girls who like had a regular job. And, you know, I knew I was like a total lunatic, but they thought I was like the best thing since chocolate. And um, I went into this girl's apartment with the full intent to never come out. Mm. She and her mother went away. And I was there for the three days. They were like, oh, please take our keys if you would stay at my place. And this is deep in the heart of Compton. Um, and I went into that house with the full intent to not come out. And it was there that literally crying, screaming, uh, yelling, cussing got out because I came from a family where my dad, I will say this way, he he's not, he, he went to Catholic school, but is not a believer. Okay. Um, my, my mother was a believer, but they were pretty much, you know, just don't shave your head or pierce your nose and you can do what you want to do. But even through all of that LA offers and there were gurus and stones and rocks and, you know, 19 different ways of faith, I believe that there had to be God. There had to be somebody bigger than all of it. And I felt that in some of my most critical times, I always had my bail made, you know, so it would, the miracle would always come through. So at this particular point, I was like, where are you? (laughs) You know, you're not showing up. I don't want to be here. I've already crossed more lines than I ever cared to cross. And there's nothing good for me to do on the other side of that door. And I literally felt if I could possibly tell you that he showed up in that place because I left out of there in in the girl's mother's clothes because I threw away the stuff I had on. I had taken like this found shower and I hadn't been seen for three days. My closest friends who knew the state I was in assumed that I, they were going to find me in an alley. Mm. And when I walked in the door, they lost it. There was literally like a cluster of my friends waiting for me at my manager's house. But I literally never turned back. I fellowshiped with the women who had been praying for me and I just took it a day at a time, but I literally never turned back. Wow, that's so inspiring. And and I'm glad that we can sit here and have this conversation. 
because a lot of these aren't happy ending stories. You know what I mean? A lot of people that tra traveled that same road, it, it's just a, yes. a dark, a dark obituary we're talking. But I it's so it's so great that there's a light on the other end of this and you can live to tell this story. And, and what would you say to other people that might maybe listen to this? Maybe, you know, hell, even between maybe they're even hear this on, in a cab ride between benders for all we know around D.C. You know what I yes. mean? Like in, in Laurel, what, what would you say to them if they're in their own dark place? that really there is hope and, and I know and people kind of think that and like like try it's really not try like I really was there I wasn't like kind of there I wasn't fake there I was literally I fully intended to never come out of that apartment and and I promise you most people not every person but a lot of people who think that it's horrific and they think that there is no light on the other side I'm telling you, most people have not gone where I went. <laughs> some have, and some have gone farther, but there's a bunch of people who think that it's 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 not retrievable, retrievable and it's not recoverable, but really there is, there is really, really hope. And wow. and my faith is 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 everything. It really, I'm like I said, I just turned 60 and I've never been happier. Oh, that's just so that's so great to hear. And then I guess so then that that sort of then makes sense now of why you I guess you played. You play a, a a Jehovah's Witness, Nola. You re, you reprise the role of Nola, darling, in Spike Lee's Red Hook Summer in 2012, and you're playing like an older version of the character who's now a Jehovah's Witness. Is that so? Did Spike's? I guess how, how did you? I guess how did you reunite with Spike? Was I guess was he aware of your you know your born again nature and and kind of wrote it like that? Yeah. So this is our whole thing. So our, our ongoing. We have always had. Put it this way, he's strong and I am definitely not weak. So we have always had a very interesting relationship and there's been always a lot of discussion because I was never one to not talk. So Spike approached me. I didn't talk to him for almost a decade. Like we literally had lost contact. Wow. Um, were you were you watching his movies? Like were you watching Do the Right Thing? Or um, I guess even before that, it would have been School Days with the good and bad hair and then Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever and oh, Malcolm X, of course. I always love Crooklyn and Clockers or something. Yeah. But yeah, like are you keeping up on his movies during this or or, or just you were checked out? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely keeping up on his movies because I know the creative talent that he is and i'm really happy for him but there's a lot of stuff that it has to do with the origins of when everybody's young and you're pre-sag and you know um people's dealings are not necessarily what they ended up being when everybody got on the other side of you know we're all official we're all with yeah. the union you know there's certain requirements being so and then like i said because we were both very strong-willed and and i was very much you know i'm going to do what i want to do i'm not going to do it because this is going to open a door right. if I don't feel like doing it. You know, I was I was very much when, you know, this is going to be my party and I'm going to orchestrate it and live with the outcome, which did almost kill me. But um, but on the other side of that, Spike um, came to actually do a book signing. And I so randomly found out about it. And this was probably in. I was here. It had to be about now, about 18 to 20 years ago. And I in Laurel that, or where was it? No, it was in PG County. It was oh. at I just remember being on the PG side. Okay. Someplace like in Largo. I don't I don't remember the this. Okay. It could have been PG Plaza. I know it was I know it was PG. So and it might have been PG Plaza, but anyway, it was so it was a book signing he was doing. And I show up at the book signing and at that point literally have not seen or talked to in more than a decade. And when he saw me. He totally burst everything. They're recording this thing. There's like, 
it's like 10 people deep and I position myself and he does the squint like Am I seeing something like, like I a double take? So <laughs> because he totally broke camera, he jumps up out of the seat, he pushes, and the people in security are trying to commandeer him, bursting through the crowd. But that's when we kind of came back in contact. We kind of, you know, made peace. The whole, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, let's at least be civil. And then throughout the years after that, um, he did a couple of things, but he pretty much would stay in contact with me. Um, the 30th anniversary, um, you know, he has Molstein as his 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 book of choice, and it has been. That's one of his um, trademarks. So there was a special edition um, that was done that was done in pink. Um, his mother died from cancer. So it was a cancer. It was in honor of his mother, but also the 30th anniversary of the movie. And but the whole cover of the book was my face. So we had to go into negotiations because he needed the release to oh, do that. Right, right. Yeah. So from that point forward, um, he did the Netflix reboot and I did a cameo on that. So to kind of tie it back, because I really didn't forget your first part of the question. The yeah. Jehovah's Witness thing was the compromise because um, I have firmly and, and repeatedly said to him, don't come at me with anything crazy that I'm not going to do because I'm just going to tell you no. Right which he finds so amusing. So the, I forget what it was that he wanted me to do, but I was like, I'm not playing that person. So because, and I absolutely positively, he knew that I was um, born again. He know he knows my faith. But, and because when he first saw me and when the, um, was it the iPad? When the iPad had first come out, of course, he was one of the first individuals on the earth who had one. Sure. Um, he, <laughs> I know he interviewed me at Union Station in Washington, D.C. He came here to meet me. Really? Yeah, it was really pretty amazing. And it was like our ultimate, we're going to make peace. The olive branch extended on both sides. Nice. And he interviewed me. And I had a conversation very similar to the, the one I'm having with you now. But he recorded the whole thing. So then he comes back to me and he tells me she's a Christian. But when I get to the set, he's a Jehovah's Witness. So he, he, you know, I guess that's what he felt like he had to do to say, I'm going to specifically make her this way. But right. people ask, ask me that all the time because I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Right. I know a lot of people are, but I'm not. But uh, but anyway, so that you wanted to be a weird. person of faith and he changed the denomination slightly, I guess. But exactly. either way, it was his comp uh, your compromise and your but I'm glad it was an olive branch and a healing between you two, too, because think about it. I mean, you're 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 both of your careers launched together and just it's been and then the, the trajectories were went, went on as they did. But yeah, I'm yes. glad that there was healing and peace there. So. Um, yep. Well, hey, I really appreciate you you spending so much time in, in your journey and being so candid. And, you know, like you're saying, the happy ending at age 60 years old now uh, doing this art exhibit. It, that's inspiring stuff. Um, yep. Let's end, let's end by inviting our listeners back, you know, bring it full circle. Invite them on. Pretend I'm not even here and you're talking directly to the WTOP listeners, you know, invite them out <laughs> to the uh, the photography exhibit now through Thanksgiving at the Laurel Museum. Absolutely. I would love for it. Every person who would like to see some um, some pretty beautiful images of Laurel, but also to get to know more about, about Laurel if you don't. The Laurel Museum is at 817 Main Street in Laurel, Maryland. The exhibit runs through Thanksgiving weekend. They're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. And on the Friday after Thanksgiving is the only day they'll be closed. So that gives you definitely five more opportunities to come. And I will be there most of those days. So I would love to meet everybody who comes through. 
That's awesome. Hey, Tracy Camilla Johns. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This was a wider reaching conversation than I didn't even even realize we would have. But thank you for being so open and, and honest and candid. And uh, it was it was a, it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason, so much as well. You have a wonderful day. All right. God bless. God bless you. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.